Before we dive into our conversation today, I want to give you a heads up about a really exciting new program that I am launching with my dear friend and colleague, Emerald Anderson Ford, of Communities Reaching for Equity and Diversity. If you recall, Emerald was a guest on season one of Rise and Rouse. Emerald and I, over the last couple of months, have designed a program called The Learning Circle. It's a community of practice for organizations who are really looking to deepen their anti-racist practices and expand their intersectional lens. We just graduated our first cohort, and we are excited to open the doors for new organizations to come in and work with us. And if you would like to learn more and set up a call, you can email me at erin at allgoodstrategies.com, and we can explore whether this program would be right for your organization. Welcome back to Rise and Rouse, the podcast for people who give a damn. I'm your host, Erin Allgood, social impact strategist and proponent of growing from failure. Today, I am joined by expert facilitator and author Leah Kral. Leah is the Senior Director of Strategy and Innovation at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, where thinkers and economists work together to discover what aspects of institutions and cultures help society prosper. Leah believes that the success of an organization rests largely on its culture. In our conversation, we discuss building good workplace practices, how new perspectives can change our lives, and what failure can teach us. Leah, thank you so much for being my guest on Rise and Rouse. Thanks, Erin. I'm so excited to be here today. I am so excited to have you here as well. This is going to be such a fun conversation. We met actually through LinkedIn, which is amazing. You had reached out to me and it's just been such a lovely relationship and so it's been so much fun to get to know you and to connect over, over your amazing book, Innovation for Social Change. Thank you. <laughs> um, so I'm just going to read a little bit from your bio and then I'll hand it to you to share a little bit more. But Leah Kral is an expert facilitator and author who helps nonprofits innovate and further social change. Leah became intrigued by the question of how teams innovate during her early career in the for-profit world in industrial industrialized Northeast Ohio. Here she worked alongside engineers, quality system gurus, and industrial designers who were talented at solving complex problems to meet the needs of their customers. Bottom-up empowerment always resulted in better products and happy customers and fulfilled team members. So this really helped you, like this environment really helped you to become an expert at management ideas, philosophy, and practice, and really helped really shape who you are and like in the beginning of your career. I'd love for you to just share a little bit more about your background. Sure. Um, yeah, my, my career has really taken some wild twists and turns. And I know Aaron, same for you as we were talking about each of our career paths. So yeah, the, as you mentioned, the first seven years I, I was of my career, I was working in the for-profit world, in the corporate world, and I worked in quality systems, which was which was kind of interesting. And as you as you mentioned, that that's where I kind of developed this love of entrepreneurial problem solving and systems thinking. And really came to admire the great management thinkers like, you know, Drucker and Covey and Dimming. But it, I just didn't feel like it was it was my calling necessarily. So like there were things I liked, but I just I knew it was probably wasn't where I was going to end up in the long run. Um, but th- there were things just for an example to illustrate the kind of work that I did. Um, so let's say, you know, you're at this industrial um, automotive uh, 
plant making cars and there was this, you know, huge million dollar machine making car bumpers and the operators there and they're checking maybe like every fifth part that comes off the line. And uh, they, they start seeing problems with what they're making, right? And so, you know, the supervisor strolls up, oh, what's going on here? You know, there's this tendency sometimes to just look for the most simplistic answer. So maybe that supervisor is just blowing off the issue like, oh, it's just operator error, operator error. Um, and so when you uh, get to enjoy things like systems thinking, that might pull in ideas from Six Sigma where you're kind of checking your assumptions and digging a little deep, deeper and asking why. So instead of just assuming, oh, it's operator error, no big deal, you might dig deeper and say, well, was the machine set up properly in the first place? Or is there a problem with the materials? Maybe it's bad materials. Was, that, was the operator even trained, Right. So I liked thinking like that. I loved the logic of it. And I ended up carrying things like that into my work with nonprofits down the road. But, but I just, at that time, I'm like, I don't think this is my calling. So um, my husband knew I was thinking about this. And so his lifelong dream was to join the Peace Corps. And he is far more adventurous than I am. So I'm like, I, I don't know about this. So he kind of sweet talked me into just having an open mind. So uh, we went through the interview process and ended up uh, getting assigned to Jamaica for two years. And so I kind of went with a little bit of nervousness, but it ended up being like this wonderful, life-changing experience. And so in the Peace Corps in Jamaica, I saw this incredible poverty, unlike anything we have in the U.S. You know, there was this one, we were in Kingston, um, the capital of Jamaica, and there was this one neighborhood I'll never forget called Majesty Gardens. And so you would see children scavenging in these heaps of, you know, garbage um, alongside kind of roaming livestock. And the children were collecting cans for recycling for pennies, right? That was, that was the reality of, of the things you were seeing there. Um, on another part of the island, I saw an entire neighborhood destroyed by a hurricane. Um, so on top of all this kind of, I mean, I'm describing kind of tough, tough things, but I always think of that saying by Fred Rogers, I think it was around September 11th, that in times of crisis, you look for the helpers. And there was that too. And that was really one of the highlights of that time um, in the Peace Corps, which is seeing all these heroic people, Jamaican community leaders really rising to the occasion and being so generous in spirit. Um, and they inspired me. So when you're a Peace Corps volunteer, you kind of have this primary work assignment. So I was placed at a teacher's college in the capital. Um, and it was run by these really feisty nuns who I came to really admire. They did not accept the status quo around them of poverty or poorly run schools. So they were kind of like these kick-ass, awesome, <laughs> you know, feisty, smart people who created this amazing college campus in the middle of a really tough circumstances. You know, there were there was, it was a wild, wild camp compound because the neighborhood was very dangerous. You'd hear gunshots at night. Um, but they managed to pull off this really great school, and I couldn't help but admire them. So as, my, as I was uncertain right about my own career, those things started to seep into me and really affect me. And it ended up changing the path of my career. So as I finished my two-year assignment in the Peace Corps, um, I, just, I realized I wanted to tie this passion that I had for good workplace practices um, but somehow help nonprofit heroes. And then that's that's the uh, direction my career ended up taking. I love a good origin story. <laughs> <laughs> it speaks so much to just, um, I think, who you are as a person, like that you decided to like jump into something like that. A little, you know, it sounds like a little hesitancy, but but to to do that and like allow that to really like change your life in that way. I think it's so interesting to kind of step into somebody else's or into another culture and to be able to experience that firsthand in the way that you're able to do that during the Peace Corps. 
what did you learn about them, about the the culture, about the people there? Because it's it sounds like there's this resiliency, but I'm sure that you learned deeper deeper than just like that the resiliency piece. Oh yeah, I, I would say, and this is probably true of all Peace Corps volunteers or development workers. When you know, just I came back to our west westernized, developed world, just so thankful for everything and learned not to take things for granted, mm-hmm. you know, like there's just so much hardship in every, like in, in a, in an underdeveloped country, every single thing is hard. Like things you totally take for granted here, like just getting to work on time, like everything was tough, like commuting was hard. Or I remember one day I was waiting for one of the teachers who would give me a ride to our college and uh, it was raining and I didn't think about it. And I was just, I didn't see her car coming to get me. And I was out there for a half hour. So finally I call her and she's like, you're going, don't go, don't go to work today. Like, because when it rains, right, the roads are destroyed. I didn't know, you know, or, you know, like going to a Habitat for Humanity community meeting to try to get, uh, you'd see like community leaders just, they would be waiting in the hot sun, you know, for the bus may or may not come. Mm-hmm. Um, so just that amazing, incredible dedication, despite all this extra, all these extra layers of hardship, you know, is just so impressive. And they also probably don't have the same kind of cons- conception of time in the ways that we like the being on time is I know in so many other cultures is so different from ours (laughs) yeah you just really can't make good promises like you might have full intention to be somewhere at three o'clock but the bus may or may not come it may rain (laughs) you know like all these things there might be mudslides that destroy the roads all these things can happen so it can be pretty challenging yeah yeah and so I, and of course I had like a little preview of the, of Majesty Gardens from the book, cause I had read the book too. I would love to hear a little bit more about one, just like what, what really inspired you to write it. Um, and so, and what that experience was like and how, how it all came together. One of the things I like love the most about it is that you intersperse all of these, these amazing stories from throughout your career with this very, very practical advice for nonprofits. So yeah, please, please talk a little <laughs> bit more about that. So I, I feel very fortunate. I'm, I'm lucky to have this very creative and interesting job. So uh, I'm kind of an internal consultant for the nonprofit where I work. Um, we're, we're, I think, a large nonprofit. We're, we're 200 people. Um, it's at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. We're an economics research center. Um, and so my role for the last um, going on almost 18 years is um, doing these workshops and consulting and helping our internal teams think through well, what is our program strategy? What is it we're trying to do? And how do we evaluate success? And this very hard question in the nonprofit world of measuring, you know, how do we know if what we're doing is working? So I do a lot of whiteboard sessions and try to draw out their creative thinking. And I love doing that. It's a lot of fun. Um, and so then I've also been, we have a wider network of university centers, about 200 that I work with, and I offer those same services to them. So there's a lot of founders and startups and, um, you know, leaders of nonprofits that I work with. And so about three years ago, my executive director approached me. He's like, hey, Leah, I've been hearing really good things about these workshops of yours. Why don't you put it into book form? And I had thought in the back of my mind, like, oh, I've got all this great material. Maybe there would be a book, but 10 years from now or something. So he really took me by surprise. Like it was much sooner than I thought, but I thought, yes, how great. I would love to do that. So I started trying to convert my PowerPoint workshops into book chapter format. And then the pandemic happened. Um, so in a way, it was kind of a gift to have kind of the quiet of my house and time to, to think. Um, and so I use that time to do a lot of research, interview people from different nonprofits and gather those stories that you mentioned. 
Um, and in addition to stories I had from my own workplace, um, I found all these great stories from places like the Mayo Clinic, Habitat for Humanity, Fred Rogers. And so, you know, the world is just full of examples of people who, who care. Um, and through these stories, I started to understand that innovation, it's really simply about finding new and better ways of doing things. Um, and innovation for nonprofits, well, what does that look like? So um, what I believe is that, so innovation in the nonprofit world, it can be really big, like something like the American Civil Rights Movement, massive social change, or the creation of, I, I learned about the creation of the 911 emergency phone system, which came about through a partnership of philanthropy and nonprofits and other people coming together. It's a great story, but that's big, right? That's nationwide. Or the types of things that like the XPRIZE Foundation works on these big, wicked problems. So aside from big innovation, innovation can also be really small. Like, let's just say you work at a legal aid clinic and you, people come into your office and you're taking their information. And let's say you came up with the idea to change from a paper-based intake system to a little iPad. Now you've saved steps. Maybe you've saved, you know, three hours a week of somebody having to do, you know, manual entry into a database. That's innovation too, right? And it's good because then you can apply those precious resources that, you know, a nonprofit has often very little resources, right? So that really matters when you can take that time and money and apply it maybe to a better use elsewhere. We want to encourage both types of innovation, big or small, and build it into our everyday workplace practices. And that's, as you mentioned, that's really what my book is about. And I was thrilled when uh, Wiley Press loved the book and gave me a, a contract and it came out in December. And I'm so happy it's been getting some good accolades from nonprofit practitioners and grant makers. One reader who runs a nonprofit in St. Louis found the book so relevant to his work that I didn't know he was going to do this. But one day on, on LinkedIn, I saw he, I bought 10 copies of this great book. Aww. I'm going to do a giveaway. Uh, and he was looking for people in his community to sign up for, for this. And that made me so happy, you know, that, that that's exactly who I wrote the book for, for busy nonprofit leaders. And um, yeah, I was, I was thrilled by that. Yeah. And I mean, for me too, just like going through this book and I was just like it what it does I think for me is like a it pulls together all of these bits and pieces that I'm like oh yeah yeah that makes sense but it's like added all this layer of understanding that either just it hadn't connected the dots for me before I'm so excited to use it in my work as well moving yeah. forward because it's just there's so much richness in here and you you lay it out in such a beautiful way that it's 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 easy to understand it too and to and to take the learning and apply it in the ways that it needs to be applied one of the things I've always thought about with respect to like creating a book, it feels like I've said this to other friends of mine who've put, who've written books, like it feels like it has to be like this like profound act of self-love in a lot of ways because it's a hard process, right? Like, and it's so much of yourself. Like did that, did it feel like that for you? You know, I, I think maybe the book promotion part is a little more challenging for me because I'm an introvert. Yeah. <laughs> but I did, I really enjoyed the writing process and I had a lot of material to start with, you know, PowerPoints. And so, yeah. so I loved the, and interviewing people was just a joy. There, I had some really good advice since this was my first experience writing a book. And so I received really good advice about things like, you know, when you start, just do a big brain dump, just get it on the page. They called it word vom vomiting on yep. the page. Like, just get <laughs> it out there and no matter how bad or silly, right? And then shape it. So I, I took that advice. And then another great bit of advice was get your chapter so good to where you think it's just brilliant. You've already revised it 30 times and then send it to uh, two chapter reviewers, uh, not your mom, not your best friend, <laughs> right? but people who might be likely to buy the book and get, and so that was humbling. Because, you know, you might have thought that your chapter is just perfect and beautiful and it would come back kind of, but 
it would sting the feedback. Sometimes you're like, oh man, you know, but they were usually right. And once you got over that and it just made the chapter so much stronger. So um, yeah, I was fortunate to have really good advice like that. So I didn't have to just figure it out on my own. And we should never be figuring things out completely on our own. There's so much like (laughs) knowledge and, you know, out there like that. I find that whenever I try to do things all by myself, like it's not as good because it's like really and truly we should be embracing collaboration a lot more too. And that's something that I I loved that chapter in the book, the encouraging creative collaboration, because you, I just think that that's what we need to do more of. We're so like inundated, I think in, especially in the U.S. where, you know, it's like pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's that individualistic nature that we just don't, we don't collaborate. We don't share in the ways that we really should be. (laughs) Here, here. Yeah. (laughs) Um, What, what is What are some of the things that you've learned about like nonprofit leadership from, from doing this work? And I mean, you've been doing this for, you said 18 years, 19 years, like a long time, you know, so you've seen what, what's the cliff notes version? (laughs) of Yeah. I I think what I'm going to hop on is uh, uh, what you're speaking about just a moment ago about collaboration. I think that was a huge lesson. So where I work at Mercatus, we have this, I, I think it's a very exciting entrepreneurial work environment and we're big believers in collaboration for finding better ways of doing things. And this does not happen by accident. It's very intentional that this is built into our workplace culture. So um, if, if you break the word collaboration apart and think about what's involved to, to have people collaborating, I think of three things, curiosity, challenge, and diplomacy. And all those mm-hmm. things kind of work together. So working with others, of course, it gets uncomfortable, right? We're not always going to agree with each other and that's okay. Um, I really like, you, you're probably a fan of Adam Grant. Yeah. Um, I really like his book, Think Again. And in that book, he shares this really colorful story about how the Wright brothers collaborated with each other. And the backstory there is growing up as young children, their their father really encouraged all their children to read widely, even things that were controversial, and then sit around the dinner table and discuss and argue. And they had this saying that arguing is the family business. So they kind of came out of this wonderful, you know, discussion type of environment. And so then later in life, as the Wright brothers were designing the plans for the first airplane, they strongly disagreed with each other about many things. But at one point, they started getting really fiery about the design and location of the propeller. And so for weeks, they were arguing so passionately back and forth and so loudly that their sister actually threatened to throw them both out of the house. (laughs) But they were each actually, despite all the arguing and the loudness, right, they were really thinking about what each other had to say And they heard each other out. And eventually one day their sister noticed they were no longer loudly arguing, but they were back to quietly working. And what they had found was that they were were each a little bit right and they were each a little bit wrong. They had been arguing about the location of one propeller, um, but what together they realized was that they needed not one, but two propellers. And this was a breakthrough that led to the discovery of flight. And I think that's a really important insight about collaboration, how it's, it's okay to be uncomfortable, you know, that the constructive conflict is really how breakthroughs happen. So I think the common thread is those three things, right? Curiosity, challenge, and diplomacy. And my book then goes on to break that down into how you do that practically in the workplace with things like your organizational values that need to be not platitudes, right, but meaningful in the workplace, or how do you build incentives into your performance review process? How do you go about hiring and recruiting for people with the right kind of values and, you know, leaders who walk the talk? So the book actually goes into then, so you want a culture like that. Well, what what does it look like and how do you do it? Especially like shifting cultures that aren't already like predisposed to that is really, really hard. Um, but it's yes. like, yeah, with like a book like yours, it's it makes it a lot easier. 
<laughs> because yeah, that, that tough love aspect of things can come across as so cruel if like the right foundation hasn't been laid. What were some of the things that were surprising that you learned through this process? Like what really like, were you like, oh, wow, that's like, it, like it made a shake in your foundational understanding of something. Yeah. Um, as I, so the civil American civil rights movement, I, I read a lot about because I admired them. So I always have admired them. Um, but as I dug deeper into that story, um, I just, I came to admire them any more, more with their courage and their strategies and all these enormous obstacles that they faced. And it's remarkable to think of what groups like say the Southern Christian leadership conference accomplished. And what surprised me was that it was not through landing, maybe I shouldn't have been surprised, right? But they did not land big grants from grant-making associations um, because they were considered so radical at the time. Um, So how they ended up raising money for all these amazing things that they did was through very small grassroots donations, right? Dollars and pennies. Um, So it it saddened me. It shook me a bit to learn that the movement did not get support from major grant-making foundations. And as I researched this, it was the same with like the women's suffrage movement. So, you know, at present day, looking backwards, right, from our our place where we're at, it might seem hard to believe that, you know, a large grant-making organization would not have been on the side of justice and civil liberties, but they weren't. And, um, you know, they were just more supportive of maintaining the status quo at the time. So, I mean, I, I was surprised and saddened, you know, to, to learn that. It makes sense, I guess, once you really challenge your own thinking and think about how things were. And then another thing that surprised me was just how hard it was to find stories of nonprofit failure. <laughs> um, I mean, I'd, I, you know, I'd spent two and a half years researching and writing the book and found great stories, right, of, of fun stories of how nonprofits were wildly successful. But I, I also thought it was really important to, you know, if we're going to learn, if we're going to have lessons in the book, then I need to find good stories of nonprofit failure. And it just took an incredible amount of digging. And so I started asking, well, why? Why is it so hard to find these stories? And I realized that in the philanthropic world, brand is is so important. It's really everything because we have to be out there fundraising and impressing people with our mission and what we're trying to do. So people are very, I think, protective of stories like that. So when there's failure, everybody gets embarrassed, right? Donors get embarrassed. The, the leaders of the nonprofit get embarrassed. So there's this tendency to sweep those stories of nonprofit failure under the rug, um, which is unfortunate because we need to le- learn from those. But there were a few gems I was able to find. Again, looking to the American Civil Rights Movement and the Southern Christian Leadership Association, they were so strategic and they embody what I would call a learning organization. They took risks. Sometimes they had terrible failures, but they would then learn and adjust. And if you read Martin Luther King's autobiography, he's really frank and transparent about their failures. One example he talked about was when they protested in Albany, Georgia. This was early on. They protested discrimination generally, but what they found was it was just too vague to really be actionable. And so um, he wrote about people who were just utterly demoralized after that. And so he, he thought so hard. The leadership thought hard. They, they studied that, discussed it, learned and adjusted. And going forward, then they learned to, to protest a specific Jim Crow law, like segregated city buses, and how that was much more effective and actionable. So I love that he was transparent. And, you know, there's no, there's no shame, right, in, in sharing, you know, we, we experiment trial and error failure is just part of that. Um, and that's how we learn and grow. One last example I love about this is the Hewlett Foundation offers this prize to their grants officers, and they encourage them to share what they call the worst grant from which you learned the most. <laughs> and I love that. Um, so at the Hewlett Foundation, then they'll have these gatherings. They'll bring their team together to, to discuss this, and they'll offer a cheesy door prize and just kind of laugh at themselves. 
And uh, I think that really takes the pressure off and allows us to be human and honest and uh, make discoveries. How great is that? Mm, Yeah, that's fantastic. I am not surprised at all that like philanthropic organizations weren't giving to, to the, to those causes and to those organizations. I mean, if we start to break all of that down, like who are leading those kinds of philanthropic organizations, especially back then, largely, you know, white folks who already had money, they, even if they didn't want to admit it to themselves, they had a vested interest in keeping the status quo. Like, yeah, so it doesn't surprise me at all. And it's, it makes me think about the nonprofit sector in general, in a lot of ways is just, there is so much amazing good. You and I like see organizations day in, day out that are just doing tremendous good in the world. And we get to help support them in that way, which is amazing. And also we're still doing it through within this framework of like, we go and ask for philanthropic dollars to bring that in, to be able to do this work. It's still, there's so many power dynamics still at play, which you and I aren't the ones, we're, we're not solving <laughs> all of that. I just... <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, no, very true. And and I have some um, bits in the book about, you know, uh, you want to do a reality check on whatever your strategy might be. And yeah. so there, there are examples in the book, like, let's do a, a thought exercise of, let's say you're back in the, in the 1950s and your goal was to, to curb teen smoking and how would you do that? And so kind of mapping your landscape of like your friends, your foes, your allies, who's on the fence and um, just checking the feasibility, like, is this a battle we can win, right? And that can be very, very smart. So you may or may not have foundations on your side, right? They might be in opposition to like in the civil rights movement, right? Or just sitting it out. And um, so those are all things to be very thoughtful about. Right, right. Yeah, we can have beautiful strategies, but they will sometimes just die when reality actually hits. <laughs> yeah. Uh, being conscientious of that is like, is very, very important. Are there any other like stories, I guess, from the maybe that made it into the book, maybe didn't make it into the book that just really warm your heart that were just kind of like, or gave you goosebumps when you were like, oh, that's amazing. I was really excited when I ran across this story. Um, so if you can imagine uh, uh, being a, a wildlife conservation nonprofit in South Africa, um, where you have a mission to save endangered rhinoceroses from poachers. And, you know, if you can just imagine that, right, beautiful creatures, the rhinoceros, they're amazing animals. And then on the landscape of, you know, of Africa, just being so beautiful. Um, but they had this really hard problem of poachers. And there's so many challenges with that, like wildlife preservation. You know, these preserves cover a large amount of land and poachers are sneaky. They're really good at what they do. They're going to sneak in in the middle of the night, you know, slaughtering the rhinos and sawing off their horns to mm-hmm. sell on the black markets. It's really tragic and a very big challenge. And so this um, nonprofit in South Africa did what most other wildlife conservation groups were doing, which was paying for really costly armed security patrols, paying for equipment like night vision goggles and weapons. Um, But really, after all that money, it wasn't working and the herd was getting smaller. So imagine you're with your team, right, trying to brainstorm, well, what are you going to do about this problem? And somebody raises their hand and suggests a really wild idea. Could we relocate the herd somewhere more remote, isolated, and harder for poachers to get to? What if we moved it from outside of South Africa to Botswana? You think about how large a rhinoceros is, right? They weigh two to three tons. They're dangerous animals, right? So I just love picturing, like, can you imagine the looks in the room that this brave soul got when they pitched this kind of wild idea? (laughs) Um, You know, a picture of the poor truck driver having to, like, drive on bad roads, right, with this dangerous animal. Um, But to their credit, the team actually heard this idea out. They thought about it. They started researching the cost to move. It's $50,000 to move one rhinoceros. But once they started adding up the costs, you know, they're like, well, we add up the cost of like these security forces that aren't actually working. 
hey, this might actually be a good idea. So to their credit, they explored it, they tried it out, and it worked. And so they did move the, a herd of 87 rhinoceroses, which um, to Botswana, they've now grown to 130. Um, so this is a nonprofit, Rhinos Without Borders. And I just, I love that story because I think it was really gutsy, but they had this culture of openness and innovation and uh, something that we can all learn from. Mm. So I, I just think it's a great story. Um, and another example kind of like that, that, that moves me is, is Mayo Clinic. So Mayo Clinic, they're one of the best nonprofit hospitals in the world. And they're famous for finding innovative solutions for people who are very sick. But their reputation did not happen by accident. They have these organizational values that are a critical part of their innovation. One value is the needs of the patient comes first. And another value is unsurpassed collaboration. There's that collaboration coming up again. And they truly live this. So Mayo Clinic's team members are trained, empowered, and encouraged to put those values into everyday practice. And it becomes part of their workplace culture, guiding all decisions, big and small. And so an example of this was that the night staff at Mayo Clinic were worried about how noise can affect a patient's good night's sleep, their peace of mind, because lack of sleep can really disrupt the healing process. And so Mayo team members came up with ideas to start conducting noise studies, and then that led to the design of quieter flooring, quieter wheels on food carts, um, lower decibels for overhead paging. And Mm -hmm. so they improved outcomes for their patients. And that's innovation. So I would say both those stories, you know, Rhinos Without Borders and Mayo Clinic are examples of how people on the front lines doing the work are where all the best ideas truly come from. And, you know, people do give a damn. And we as managers most often just need to get out of their way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yes. I can't tell you how many times I'm sure this has happened to you too, where it's like you're the consultant or, you know, for me, like I'm the consultant coming into these spaces and, you know, and I'm just like, yeah, we're going to talk to like everybody, you know, we're going to talk to everybody. We're not going to just talk to like the executive team. Like we're not just going to talk to the the board and the leaders of the organization. Like everybody, everybody counts and everybody, it's vitally important to hear from everybody. Those are like, those are such great examples. I love those. I I feel like I need to come up with some kind of a saying just around like, yeah, to move a rhinoceros, you know, like, or so, you know what I mean? Like what it takes to move a rhinoceros, however many thousands of miles or whatever it was. Cause it's just like, there's. (laughs) It could be a really good meme, you know, I like it. (laughs) Yeah, most definitely. That's like, that is fantastic. You just must've had so much fun diving into all of this and learning all of this. And how are you different? you know, as a result of this process. I, I love learning about these stories. It was really encouraging. You know, and I think read, hopefully the reader will have that feeling too after reading through the book, you know, just really encouraging to see, you know, when, I get, there were so many startup stories, right, that I would run across, um, you know, like the the origin stories. I, I love superhero movies, right, yeah. and you, especially the origin stories. And so learning about how an organization like Habitat or Alcoholics Anonymous got off their feet, some people might be hesitant. Like they might think, oh, innovation for social change, that's too big. I can't do that, right? That's, but when you read these origin stories, they're all, all these great nonprofits we know about now started very humbly. You know, even the civil rights movement, just a handful of people, maybe not even any funding to start with, um, but just dedicated people with an idea. Um, and I, I think that's really encouraging. I love that you can feel like that inspiration and everything. And <laughs> just going back to like one of the things you had said before that I, I meant to come back to the stories of failure, because like we always put on like this, like, you know, we always want to like showcase things in the best way. What's like, what is maybe like one example of failure 
of a fa- like a failure story that like has stuck with you? So yeah, one one story I ran across was um, Whole House uh, in Chicago, and so um, they were so famous. Like there were all sorts of books written about them. Whole House was a I think an immigrant resettlement house that um, had been around for like a hundred over a hundred years. Their founder, uh, Jane Adams, had won the Nobel Prize, and they were so good at what they did uh, helping immigrants in Chicago. There were all these copycats all over the country. So, you know, they were they seemed really successful. And then I was so surprised to run across how uh, the story of how they suddenly closed their doors not too long ago. Um, and there were all these stories in the local news, like what had happened? Right? All of Chicago was wondering. Um, so when you start un- unfolding the story and learning more about it, it turned out it was more a story of um, at least some, some reporters conject- conjecture that it was scope creep. Mm-hmm. Um, so they really started kind of subtly shifting their mission. So where before they were super dedicated to being local and they had this committed base of local donors who cared about Chicago deeply. Um, slowly over time, they started becoming like a government service organization and accepting these large grants from, from the federal government. Um, and it just, ex- accepting that funding kind of changed the nature of what they were about, changed their, slowly changed their organizational identity um, to where they were just not even doing the same stuff anymore. Um, and so they just, uh, in time, ended up kind of uh, shutting their doors and closing down, which was a tragedy. Um, so, so yeah, I think uh, it can be very important to think hard about, you know, to make the time to be strategic and think about your organizational identity, to ask hard questions, to make sure you're not engaging in mission creep or scope creep, right? To to check in and ask yourself hard questions. So we, ha- we have this saying at Mercatus that we ask ourselves the hard questions so our board and donors don't have to. <laughs> and so, yep. you know, think of that Pixar tough love kind of environment. And, and we do that, but it's it's never a downer, right? It's I feel like we're, we're all just kind of stress testing our thinking and, well, you know, how would we poke holes in this strategy? And are we really doing the very best thing here? And it's, it's collaborative and it's a good thing, you know, so... Yeah. I have um, at one point when I was in grad school had written a, a paper on like just reframing failure and how important it is to reframe fa- failure as through like the lens of like resilience because it's just I think there's such I, especially for me I, growing up like a perfectionist um, and like a workaholic I had always been at workaholic tendencies still you know to this day, actively working on them. Um, (laughs) But, you know, like the perfectionism aspect of things, I just would be so terrified of failure. It's like the thing that held me back so much. And I see it in a lot of organizations as well, where it's just the staff is maybe afraid of failing or afraid of, you know, bringing something up because they just don't know what the reaction is going to be or their culture isn't, isn't conducive to that for whatever reason. And it's, I, I think that that is one of the biggest reasons why um, organizations and and individuals too just get held back from being able to innovate. Yeah, yeah. There's a chapter in the book on experimentation that gives lots of examples of how nonprofits experiment, and and so it just par for the course with that is you have to be able to accept some percentage of failure. You're like I think it's the venture capitalists have an eighty twenty rule, like. Yeah. Um, you know, there's just there's an expectation that certain there's just going to be a certain number of experiments that, of course, will fail, right? And you're finding what doesn't work. And like we we were lucky at where I work at Mercatus to have a good board that tells us, hey, it's okay to fail as long as you can kind of explain your thinking and um, just talk us through like how how you were taking risks and thinking through it and learning and adjusting in the process. That's all good. So um, I would wish wish that for every nonprofit that they have a, a board with messaging like that. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I think you and I both know that a lot don't. (laughs) (laughs) I love, there's so many boards that I have worked with that I love so dearly and they care so, so deeply about, about the work the organization is doing. And, and some of them just need like that training to kind of actually understand what it, what it means to be a board member because nobody intrinsically knows necessarily. You're not just board a board member, board a board member. (laughs) So for you, like, what does it like mean to give a damn? Like, what is, I mean, I, you are like definitely one of the most damn giving people I know. (laughs) Just based upon knowing you for, you know, as like, you know, even a short period of time, you know, what does that mean to you? How does it show up? Not to dodge or use another story, but I think this, <laughs> this illustrates. So there was a story this month in the Washington Post uh, just a few weeks ago about this uh, a prison guard at a Louisiana correction. She was a Louisiana corrections officer at a women's prison. And this corrections officer's name was uh, is Roberta Bell. And so Miss Bell had a reputation amongst the prisoners for being kind of a kind-hearted person. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the prisoners was a woman who was eight months pregnant, and she was very worried. She had no one to take care of her baby, no family resources. And she was fearful of foster care with strangers, but she really liked Miss Bell and trusted her. So she asked Miss Bell, would you be willing to care for my baby for a few months um, until I'm released? And uh, she said, you know, yes, yes, I'll do this. Um, so, fall, but fall, here's the sad part. Yeah. Following her workplace policies, Miss Bell had to let her supervisor know about this arrangement, and there was a problem. Corrections officers are not allowed to give their personal contact information to inmates. I mean, sometimes there's shady things that happen, yeah. drug deals, yeah. and so they have this policy. Um, but her supervisor told her, if you follow through on this, you will lose your job. Um, but Miss Bell had given her word. She took care of the baby. She lost her job. And then when the mother came out of a prison, she took her in as well. And so the story went viral a little bit. And people reading the story did set up a GoFundMe campaign. And they've raised, when I checked yesterday, $8,000, which is good. But that's not enough to offset the loss of a full-time job and benefits. So I think Miss Bell is a great example of someone who gives a damn, right? Yeah. She clearly walks the talk at great personal sacrifice. And to me, that's the gold standard. You know, people like Miss Bell, people like those nuns I mentioned in Jamaica who are running the school, they're really focused on what do people need and how can I help? And so I don't mean to avoid your question of how do I personally give a damn. Um, I've just been telling a lot of stories of people I admire. But I guess in my own way, I think about how can I help these people doing all these wonderful things? How can I bring kind of my own skill set and expertise about workplace practices so that I can help people like them be more organized, focused, and innovative, maybe a little less stressed, maybe a little bit more likely to succeed? And I care deeply about that. So that's kind of my way of contributing. <laughs> yeah. I think, and I mean, just going back to like your your origin story, you know, that we talked about in the beginning of being in Jamaica and just you showed up in that space and allowed yourself to be changed and it changed the trajectory of your life. And so to me, that's part of like what, be, like just as you're you know talking about this too, it's just like allowing yourself to be open to just having your world rocked, you know, that's part of giving a damn. So it, it's, as you were just sharing all of these stories, I see that part of you in, in the work that you do and in what you're sharing. I don't know how thank that feels you. for you. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I think that's probably true. Um, yeah. Having a spirit of openness, um, I think is probably part of that. Yeah. It's, it's nice to have someone, someone else observe that. It, we can't always see these things on ourselves. So thank you for making that observation. <laughs> Which I mean, that goes back to the creative collaboration conversation. Yeah. I, mean, it's, I mean, this is like just layers upon layers of, of interconnectedness in this conversation today. Um, 
how are you centering justice in your work? This is a question I like to ask folks because it's, mm-hmm. you know, so much of this podcast is about like, what is it, what is, how does social justice even show up in our world? Yeah. Liv, to turn that to you. I think that's a really great question. And um, I could start by asking, well, what does justice mean to me? And I think justice is not an easy thing to define. You know, all the great philosophers ask and wrestle with what is justice? And, but there, there's this wonderful quote. There's this book, you might be familiar with this author. So Natasha Dion uh, wrote this really moving novel set in, the 1840, set in 1840s Georgia about a 15-year-old girl who was running away from slavery. And the name of this book is called Grace. And uh, there's a, 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 in her novel, she writes, and I'll read this twice because it's such a cool quote, justice is getting what you deserve and mercy is not getting the bad you deserve. Grace is getting a good thing, even when you don't deserve it. Mm. I, I just, I read that and I say, wow. So justice is getting what you deserve and mercy is not getting the bad you deserve. Grace is getting a good thing, even when you don't deserve it. And I love that she puts it that way because, of course, it's so easy to point fingers at other people, but we also have to look closely at ourselves and our own actions when we think about justice. And so, you know, how do I conduct myself in my personal life and in the workplace? And do I seek the truth even if it's uncomfortable? I mean, we all know, right, in the workplace, there can be extremely uncomfortable conversations. And are we courageous enough to have those? Do I treat everyone with dignity even if that person gets on my very last nerve? (laughs) How do I deal with situations that are unfair? And these things happen all the time, right? Like the workplace is kind of a tangled mess for human, right? So, And there are terrible things like bad decisions or egos or discrimination or or petty office politics. And, you know, in the face of all that mess, do I conduct myself with integrity and courage? And so I think this idea of justice forces us to ask some of those hard questions. And, um, but sadly, right, often we can fail to ask ourselves those hard questions, like the example of how the civil rights movement received no support from grant makers. And you know that those grant makers probably would have said that they care about justice and human dignity. They might have said all those right words, but their actions didn't live up to their image of themselves and their words. So, so back to your question then. So how do I center justice in my work? I would say if, if you think about it, nonprofits are providing some of the greatest gifts to the world and taking on some of its hardest problems, right? They're, they're building civil society, our work eases hunger or fights injustice. As you've heard, as you've heard in many of these stories I've been sharing, um, you know, nonprofits that advance education help break the chains of ignorance and poverty. There's recovery programs, mental health counseling, medical care and research that provides healing. Um, you know, these arts programs that lift the human spirit. So I, I feel like all of that very good work is definitely centered around questions of justice or injustice and human dignity. Um, and I think so many people are counting on that work. And, you know, um, you know, there, there's the ideal part, all these good things that I just described, but then there's the reality part of organizations. And we really need organizations that empower us to ask courageous questions, to encourage everyone in the organization in a bottom-up sort of way to innovate and experiment, to discover what works best for these people we're serving. And uh, I just feel I'm really privileged to work alongside people who are every day immersing themselves in these questions of justice. I love that answer. And I think it's, you know, one of the things I, I oftentimes think about with nonprofits too is just that we need to make sure that like the inner conditions create the outer change. This is like a, you know, something I've always um, saying, I've always kind of reflected back on. And it's, you know, if if the workplace, if within the workplace itself, if it's toxic or if, you know, it's, it's you know, things are just not working very well and, and all of that, that often obviously impacts the impact that the organization can create in the world. So, 
you know, I think the work that you're doing to really like help those to help organizations really, really function much better to innovate, to like understand these things is so, so critical. And it like creates this ripple effect when we start to look at like the movements out there and, and the work that nonprofits are doing. So like you have a direct like hand in helping to make the world a better place. (laughs) That sounds so trite when I say it like that, but, but really and truly, like I see that, like those ripple effects that are happening as a result of the work you're doing. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to hear that. Leah, thank you so much for having this conversation with me today. And I'm so excited to be in relationship with you and to like know you and to be able to like tell everybody about your book moving forward and just honored to have you here today. Thank you. It was my honor to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Rise and Rouse is created and hosted by me, Erin Allgood. It is produced and edited by Steph George of Stefania Audio. Production support from Grace Cleary Morin and Yana Krizanova. Our theme music is written and produced by Chris Marion. If you enjoyed this conversation, please leave a five-star rating and review to help us reach more people. Make sure to follow Rise and Rouse wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss your chance to hear from someone who gives a damn. Follow us on Instagram at Rise and Rouse and sign up for my newsletter by going to allgoodstrategies.com.